The Evan Solomon Show, today with special guest host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Friday, everyone, wherever you are. I am so excited to be joining you today to talk about some of the biggest stories of the week, to interview newsmakers. Um, We've got an amazing show for you. I'm Amanda Galbraith. I am the host of Free For All Friday from 1 to 2, which has been expanded to an extra hour uh, for the next 12 weeks. So now from noon to 2, you can catch me um, interviewing people for the first hour and talking to you. And then, of course, we have our regular Free For All panel from 1 to 2 o'clock. And today we're going to be joined by Carl Doxetter and uh, Tom Mulcair who's always got an amazing take. Um, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, we're going to go all over the place. One, we're going to talk about the debate around the LIV, uh, the new sports uh, golf tournament that's happening, sports washing. What do you make of that? Uh, I think it's it's fascinating on a number of levels. Uh, one from, <laughs> frankly, how all of a sudden everyone's up in arms about sports washing when it's being done in other, you know, from soccer to my beloved F1 um, you know, it's not a new thing, but certainly it seems to be ruffling the golf circuit a little more than normal. We're going to talk about Afghan refugees. That's right. We haven't talked about that issue in a while. Um, Canada had, may have actually lost 2,900 applications from Afghans who worked with Canadians or worked for Canada over there. So we're going to take a look at that and uh, talk to the NDP critic who has unearthed this potential um, issue. Uh, we're also going to take our cross-Canada road trip. So every week, because we've got the extra two hours for the next 12 weeks, uh, well, 13 started last week, actually, we are going to go to a different capital of a different province and talk to them about what makes that province, what makes that capital great. And, you know, as we all look to travel internationally, maybe, maybe you want to stay closer to home. So this week we're going to St. John's. And then, of course, speaking of travel, what is going on with our airports? What is going on with our airports? And I say this as somebody who's about to head out on a two-week vacation. Uh, I'm flying out of Pearson tomorrow, um, and I am very interested (laughs) and hopeful that I'll get there. I'm going to go four hours early, which is a record for me to see if I can get through. So I'm hearing from lots of people that sometimes they get in great and sometimes they don't. So we're going to talk a little bit about what the feds are doing. Do they need to be moving faster? Where is the problem? Um. So I just mentioned I'm going on vacation, and I'm I'm really excited for that, to be totally candid. I love doing the show here with you every week. Um, I love doing all the media commentary that I do. I love my day job at Navigator. Um, it's largely crisis communications work that I do, so it's it's a really high-level, 24-7, high-pressure job, right? It's something I adore, um, but it also means I get phone calls at all hours of the day. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, actually last week, we were, my, my partner and I, Mark, were, were on a date. We're going to go see Top Gun, and... Uh, um, and we were going to get there a little early and have a nice dinner. Right. And of course what happens, crisis hits have to be on client calls. So Mark's sitting with me at dinner, like, you know, six o'clock, the movie's at seven twenty. Um, we've got about 30 minutes to get to the movie and I'm on a conference call and we're having our romantic dinner is totally ruined. He's a great sport. Um, I will say he's used to it. So is my family. And he's also got a pretty busy job. Um, and I know that part of my job means I have to answer calls after hours. I have to work on weekends. Um, but what if it didn't? Right? What if it didn't? Uh, and that's a great question. That's what I want to talk about today off the top of the show. A new pilot launched in Canada and the U.S. this week for a four-day work week. So there are 38 companies participating in this in North America, um, and that includes Canada and the U.S., basically. Now, these workplaces – now, I thought a four-day work week was just you worked – because that's how I think in my head, right? 40 hours, I'll do it in four days. I'll do 10 hours a day. Uh, but the way this pilot is designed – 
is uh, you reduce uh, to 32 hours as opposed to 40 and four days, and they call it the 180-100 model. So basically, you get 100% of your pay for 80% of the time with 100% of the productivity, um, which is a really interesting concept and not something that's new uh, here just in Canada, um, you know, North America for that matter. Um, we've seen it put in place in uh, in New Zealand, for example. The Prime Minister's talked about that. Iceland, Iceland they had a trial that was successful, um, but that was restricted to public service. So this is something that's, that's happening here in Canada as we speak. Um, and this also comes on the heels of uh, a right-to-disconnect policy that's been put in place here in Ontario, meaning basically you don't have to respond to work calls after hours, with a couple other things. So in theory, when that crisis hit last week when Mark and I were on a date, I could have not picked it up. <laughs> now, I don't know if I would have had a job in <laughs> two days, but I could have said, no, I'm at a nice dinner with my partner. I don't want to do this right now. Um, I don't know what to think about this, and I'd be curious what you think about it seven ten ten. Uh, if you have thoughts, you're pro or anti four-day work week. Um, and by the way, thank you for all the lovely texts that I'm getting. You guys are very kind <laughs> and sweet to uh, to be excited to have me hosting for two hours. Um, I think it's a I, look. In principle, I love the idea of a four-day work week, and sometimes we do it actually in my day job at Navigator for long weekends. We get an extra day, like pursuant as long as client work isn't happening. And we've managed to make that work at a crisis firm that's on call 24/7. I have on call weekends, um, and. Interesting stats say it's good. 78% of employers who do the four-day work week say they are happier. Our employees say they're happier and less stressed. 63% of businesses say it's easier to attract employees. Um, stats also say Canadians are broadly on board with this. Maru Public Opinion Research Poll in February said 79% of Canadians are willing to work 10-hour days, like me, uh, for a four-day work week. And interestingly, the higher income, the more likely you are to switch. So 88% of people over who make over $100,000 a year are into this. 76% of people, so it goes down about you know 12 points, um, who make less than $25,000 a year are, are into it. But I guess the question I have about it, and I think a lot of employers do if you look at the coverage, is is it realistic? You know, just like the right to disconnect policy, we have one at work. Um, I think it's meaningful for them. But I take a look at my clients who are sometimes having you know, the worst times of their lives. I'm here to support them. And they need me to call them back at 8 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock in the morning or text them at 11. Right? So is it is it fair to some folks? And particularly, is it fair to workers in service jobs who, frankly, don't have that luxury? Like, they don't work Monday to Friday, right? Um, people in trades, uh, you know, they don't work Monday to Friday either, um, oftentimes. So, you know, I think it's a very interesting debate that we're having as a country and probably something that's as a result, I think, of the pandemic that's been accelerated. Um, and in fact, for example, a software company here in Toronto, Kalita, announced they're trialing shifting their 500 employees to four days a week. And they themselves have attributed this feedback to what they've gotten on the, on the, uh, from the pandemic. So they basically said, our employees have come back. We want them to come back to work. We just talked about the fact that the, the workplace is it's really hard to hire right now. It's really hard to attract new talent. And some folks think this is going to give them the edge. And maybe it will for certain workplaces. But I guess I wonder in my day job, I don't know how we'd manage a four-day work week, frankly, to be totally candid. Because my work day is seven days a week, primarily. Some days I get weekends off, sometimes I don't. And it's sort of what I accept for the money that I make. And I think that's fair trade-off. Um, you know, but there are other folks who, who may want to just, you know, put their phone away after five o'clock. And I think, like, good for you. Um, I am not one of them. I don't know. I don't know how, how I would do that. So... It's interesting. This pilot is launched. Uh, it's going to be, they're going to be doing research about it. They're going to be publishing the results. 
Uh, they basically pair workplaces with mentor companies that have successfully implemented it. So Juno College of Technology in Toronto is one of them um, participating in this. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this rolls out. And I'm getting interesting feedback right now about, you know, yeah, here we go. Work 10-hour shifts Monday to Thursday. Fantastic. Steve loves it. So Steve from Toronto loves it. So some folks are texting in and saying that they love it. Um, I just don't see how it would work for for somebody that does my job. But I think it's if we can shift to more of this sort of response, I think that makes sense. Or even, you know, do we not respond to work calls after hours? I mean, that's another interesting thing. So France did this as a right to disconnect in 2017. Italy, Spain, and Ireland have followed suit. You could also probably look at their productivity and say maybe it's <laughs> part of their, their culture. Uh, but I think I look at this. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to see what happens. Um, I don't think we're going to have a four-day work revolution here in Canada. I just don't. I don't think it's realistic for a lot of industries. Um, and I don't think it's a viable option, especially for folks like myself. Um, but I certainly think it's, it's worth a kick at the can and worth a trial. And if we can make some people happy and attract them to jobs, that's great. Uh, but bottom line, I'm not sure if it's uh, if it's the right thing to do. So next up on the show, uh, this these food shortages keep making headlines, and it, it keeps snowballing. So apparently, there's a sriracha shortage. Did you know that there is a, a a corn shortage, which is impacting popcorn, believe it or not. Um, and then my most beloved condiment of all time, my favorite thing to have on everything. It's basically its own food group in my health my house and i think for many canadians is now at risk so join us after the break we're going to have an expert on this talk about what you should be stocking up and what you shouldn't be my next guest will be telling us all about that i'm amanda galbraith on the iHeartRadio radio talk network is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday. And as mentioned off the top, you've got me for an extra hour every week uh, for the next 13 weeks, except for, for two weeks for now because I'm going on vacation. So, But other than that, you get... Uh, you get you get nine nine weeks of me from noon to two. Uh, where we're going to talk about some of the biggest stories of the week, and then of course we'll get into the typical free for all Friday roundtable from one to two with uh, with our biggest panelists from across the country. Um, this week we have Carl Dockstetter, who's uh, host of One Dish One Mike, and we have Thomas Mulcair, former NDP leader, and someone frankly I love to talk to because he's always got a great take on big political issues. Speaking of a political issue or a problem, food shortages. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about it recently, right? Everything from shortages of wheat due to the war in Ukraine to issues of climate change. But it has been hitting, I think this has gone above and beyond. This is not okay anymore. Um, we have now learned, I have now learned recently that ketchup is at risk, people. And yes, I, I saw the text where you said I've lost my foodie credibility. I'm fine. I stand firmly in my love of ketchup my deep and undying love of ketchup. Um, but it is a risk of becoming a luxury in the future because of climate change. Apparently, higher temperatures are going to mess with the harvest and the type of tomatoes that are used to make ketchup, including bolognese, stews. Um, a big issue here is two-thirds of the world's 180 million, million tons of tomatoes grow every year in California, China, and Italy. And frankly, scientists fear California, Italy would be the hardest hit by upcoming um, 
shortages. Now, you know, good news is, is this may not hit you immediately and that you may have till 2050 or 20 or 2100, I guess. I don't know. What do we call it then? But uh, to stock up in your ketchup. But it's still a problem. And that's not the only one. So joining us today to talk about food shortages, what you should be doing, do you need to stock up, is this hyped? is Dr. Sylvain Chalabois, who's, who's quote-unquote the food professor. He's a senior director at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and a professor of food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. Uh, Dr. Chalabois, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Now, we are getting news that there is, um, I feel like every time I turn around, something else is running out. Um, now it's popcorn, it's sriracha, <laughs> it's, it's ketchup. Like, what, what is going on right now? Uh... Well, lots actually. Uh, there's, there's. Uh, I mean, we are expecting shortages uh, in different places for a variety of reasons, and, and the biggest one, of course, are supply chains. Supply chains aren't as efficient as they used to, and so costs are going up. Companies are changing their procurement strategies. They're buying different ingredients. Sometimes. Those ingredients are available. Sometimes they're not. And, of course, they're always looking at price. And if the price is not right, they, they'll just stop making the product because if they can't sell the product, there's no point in making the product in the first place. And so that's kind of what's going on right now. Inflation is impacting all of us every day right now. But inflation is also affecting supply chain economics as well. And, uh, and, of course, for all of us, sometimes we underappreciate that because there's lots of tension within the supply chain right now, whether it's because you can't get the ingredients you want or because your customer, like Loblaws or Sobeys, don't want to buy your product uh, because it's, it has become too expensive. So there's, there's lots going on. So right now we can talk about sauces. This morning I was talking to another reporter about about uh, lemonade and citrus juices, uh, which are running short. A few weeks ago, was up, it was about baby formula. There, there's lots going on right now. So given that every cup, I mean, yeah, I did not know the lemonade thing. I, by the way, I also love lemonade. Not as much as I love ketchup, which is like I would I would be stocking like a closet full of it. If I oh, and it mustard, was... by the way, you, mustard is also a problem right now. Yeah. <laughs> so... That was my there next question to you. What, what is, so some of this stuff is overhyped, right? Like we, I remember from the early pandemic days, it was toilet paper was an issue in that like people got word that it was a problem and all of a sudden everybody started, it wasn't a real problem, but people started to hoard toilet paper. So are any of these sort of reports, whether it's sriracha, whether it's the ketchup stuff, the lemonade, is that a problem from people overreacting to it post-pandemic or are there actual like, should we be watching out for certain products or people at home should be watching out to stock up a little bit more, like on lemonade, as you just mentioned? Uh, it really depends. I hate to respond that way, but it really depends of the product, where you are, where you're buying and everything. So the toilet paper issue is totally different. There was not. There was there were no shortages of toilet paper. It's just it was a distribution issue, really. I mean, you saw... You saw demand uh, flip almost overnight, and store merchandising just couldn't keep up. That's a minor issue, really. But what we're looking at right now is, I think, more significant because you are looking at, yes, problems to access problems to ingredients. Uh, You're looking at 
uh, companies not buying from uh, from other companies, uh, all of them because of higher prices. Uh, you may actually uh, also distribution is being impacted by labor. Uh, we all know uh, that right now the uh, the workforce or the labor market is very tight. Uh, the unemployment rate is unbelievably low. And so in the food business, what that means is that it means that you have fewer bodies to move things around and you're wasting more food. When you're wasting more food, it means that you have less to sell. So that tightens things up even more. Now, if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Dr. Salvin Shilabra. He's the food professor. He's a senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and a professor of food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. Um, Dr. Shilabra, we've we've heard a lot of about, for example, wheat shortages with the war in Ukraine. How much is the war in Ukraine contributing to this versus just supply chain issues that are a holdover from the pandemic, as you've mentioned? Uh, I mean, uh... <laughs> Uh, how, how long do we have here? <laughs> you, have, so, you have two more minutes, so go. <laughs> so, yeah, so essentially the, the war in Ukraine has made everything more expensive. And uh, we're not the, the, the war in Ukraine is not making the world run out of anything yet, but it's coming. That's the thing. Ukraine can feed 400 million people every year. We're going to have a deficit within 10 weeks from now, okay? So we're not running short of anything because of Ukraine, but we will eventually run short of some things like wheat, barley, sunflower because of Ukraine. Right now, it's mostly about supply chain disruptions uh, and supply chain economics, essentially. That's really what's going on right now. But in three months from now, when we talk again, Ukraine is absolutely gonna be a factor when it comes to shortages. Okay, so if you're you're a, you know a parent or um, like a mom or dad, and you're feeding a family of four right now, um, you know we're seeing grocery prices rise, as you mentioned, inflation. We are seeing just like spotty sort of supply of, of of different goods. What tip would you have for them as far as stocking up, feeding their families? Like, should they be concerned, or should we just you know kind of continue on and eventually this will level off? I don't think I would stock up. I would do two things. One. As a family, look at your budget, okay? Whatever proportions you're dedicating to food, that's going to increase, which means something else you will have to drop. That's the reality of, of seeing a food inflation rate being at 10%, and that's not going to end now. It's going to, it's going to continue on for several months. So look at your budget. And the second thing I would do as a family Whatever you eat, you whatever you buy, eat it. Eat what you buy as much as possible, and try to save. Uh, try not to waste as much as possible. That is, that is really the best way to save right now. Okay, we're at a racetrack. Thank you so much, Dr. Shalabar, for joining us. Uh, that was Dr. Silvan. Oh, thanks so much. Have a great day and great weekend. That was uh, Dr. Salvin Shilabra. He's uh, a senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. So you heard him there. Uh, if you're at home, be prepared. Prices are going to go up, which I know is painful given how high they're up already for groceries. And uh, eat what you buy, which is probably something I need to do a little bit more of because uh, I definitely um, buy more veggies than I I end up consuming. Uh, we've had lots to say on the show about how the government isn't moving fast enough to bring in Afghan refugees. And you won't believe what this newest scandal 
may be both. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith. I'm host of Free For All Friday, which normally goes from 1 to 2 every week. Uh, but for the summer, we've expanded it for an extra hour. So now we're going from noon to 2, uh, and we're interviewing newsmakers, uh, talking to important people, talking to you about the biggest news of the week, and then, of course, moving to our uh, panel debate and from the 1 to 2 o'clock hour. So this next story uh, is an important one and certainly caught my eye and, and the eye of, of Sam, um, our producer here. Uh, Ten months ago, when Canada withdrew from Afghanistan, um, we committed as a country to opening up our doors to 40,000 refugees. Um, many of these people worked with Canadians, Canadian soldiers over there, the Canadian embassy, helped save their lives. We're talking translators, um, you know, individuals, like folks who, frankly, we should have home here. Since then, only 14,000 have been approved to come to Canada. So that's less than 40%. Um, there have been stories of bureaucratic messes, uh, impossible paperwork to complete. Um, they're endless. They're heartbreaking. Uh, you know, you can look at any news channel. I know we talked about it here on the show. Uh, CTV, our, our sister station, has done so too. Um, you know, these are people who help Canadian soldiers and help Canadian save lives are now stranded. Um, and today we have a new story um, that frankly should be too insane to believe. And yet, having worked in government, I believe it just might be true. Uh, so... Um, the NDP have released, uh, basically claiming that the federal government has, quote, lost 29,000 applicants, applications of Afghans who work for Canada. And joining us to talk about that today is Jenny Kwan. She's the NDP immigration critic. Thanks so much for joining the show, Jenny. Thanks for having me. So how does the government lose 2,900 applications? Well, that's a really good question, isn't it? It's astounding. But the reality is this. What we know, and it was testified uh, at our special committee on Afghanistan uh, from officials from the Department of National Defense, and they advised committee members that they have submitted and referred 3,800 applications uh, of Afghans who served in Canada and their families to uh, the uh, immigration department. However, only 900 of them have been confirmed. And so what that means is 2,900 of those applications have gone missing somewhere between departments. When you uh, contact IRCC, they can't seem to find them. In fact, uh, the immigration department have told um, applicants to go back to the Department of National Defense and ask them to re-refer those applications. Now, that to me is a definition of having lost a file. I know that the minister will say that, no, they didn't lose the file. Well, if you can't find them and you don't know where they are, that means that they're lost. And so that is the reality of what people are faced with. And the serious consequence of this cannot be underscored uh, and minimized because people's lives hang in the balance with each passing day where the government's not processing these applications, their lives are in further jeopardy because right now, as we speak, they're being hunted down by the Taliban. And that is the reality. And that's what's at risk here. So basically they've applied, 900 of them have been are being processed and 2,900 are just somewhere in the bureaucratic mess between D&D &D and immigration 
Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. And now the government has gone to the applicants and said they must re like resubmit. Is that what they're being asked to do? Yeah, some of the applicants, because we've been chasing down these files, saying, you know, where is it? Because they've not heard from the immigration department. We have emails verifying from the Department of National Defense that they have sent the files over to immigration. But immigration can't find them because and, – and the applicants have not heard from them. And this is as far back as August. Right, The minute the government made the announcement that they will accept these applications, people applied, and they were referred by the Department of National Defense. And months later, almost 10 months later, some of uh, the vast majority of these applicants, 2,900 of them, have not even heard from IRCC, from the Immigration Department. And some of them are being asked, can you re-refer these files? So that's what's happening right now. So immigration, frankly, is in complete chaos, as far as I can tell. It's not only just the Department of National Defense referral files that they can't seem to find. We also have similar, a similar situation with uh, Global Affairs Canada's referral files as well, GAC referral files. They can't find those either. I have constituency cases where people have family reunification files that have been sent in uh, and, and, and marked with urgency. And even the minister himself said that he's going to personally look into this because families should not be separated. Uh, and it's been more than a month. And my, the response I got back from immigration officials is that we're trying to find the file. So it just seems to me that they are they can't seem to find the files, and that to me is a definition of having lost these files, and it is so serious. The consequence is so serious because people's lives hang in the balance of the government being able to organize themselves and do their jobs. And if you're just joining us now, this is Jenny Kwan. She's the NDP immigration critic, and she's talking to us about applications for Afghans who have supported Canadian soldiers, supported the Canadian government, and the fact that the federal government may have lost 2,900 applications um, for those who applied for refugee status here in Canada. Uh, now, um, I want to ask you, you know, you've mentioned the consequences of this, right, and that these people are being hunted, the, the refugees or applied refugees in, in Afghanistan. Um, you said you've worked on some consular cases. Can you talk to me a little bit about what what that means? We know, like, they're not sitting at home waiting around with, like, Internet to have these things filed. Like, what is happening to these Afghans who have helped Canadian soldiers stay alive um, as they wait? Are they in hiding hole? Like, are they allowed to leave? Can they leave their homes? Are they in, are they hiding? Like, what's happening to them? Oh, they're absolutely hiding, are in hiding and trying to not be caught by the Taliban. The Taliban has made it very clear that they were going to hunt them down. Those who have helped the West, helped Canada uh, with our missions abroad, uh, are, are going to be hunted down by the Taliban. And so people are running from house to house, uh, you know, from province to province, street to street, hiding from one place to another. You know, one individual, one file that I have advanced and brought to the minister's attention, he's been living in a closet for months and then just... Wow trying to avoid uh, being caught by the Taliban. And he lives in fear, and his family, they live in fear every minute of the day, worried that they might be discovered. And time is not on their side. As this continues to be delayed, as the government can't do their job to bring people here to safety, those who served 
Canadians in the military, if we can't bring them to safety, I fear that their lives would be lost. It's a matter of time. Their luck is going to run out. How long can you hide from the Taliban without being caught? Meanwhile, their resources are dwindling as well because they can't obviously work and they have no money and no resources. And so, you know, the people's lives are in such peril right now. They are in jeopardy every minute of the day. And how is it even possible for the government, for the Ministry of uh, Immigration, not to be able to find the files? These files were referred by the Department of National Defense. All of these ind individuals where the files being referred by them have been vetted. There are no security concerns. Uh, and for uh, the Department of National Defense, to refer their files, A, they have to prove and they have to prove that the individuals served Canada, that they have this enduring relationship and they have that information on file to verify that these individuals are who they are. And second, they have their employment records on file. So there's no question about these people's identity. There's no question of, around any security issues. And yet, uh, Nine, ten months later, when these files have been referred to the Department of uh, Immigration, you know, of the 3,800 files, they only process 900. 2,900 applications are missing. They can't find them. They, they do not know where they are. And when wow. you bring it up to their attention, they say, okay, wait, we, 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 we haven't lost them. We're going to look for them. Well, it's been months, and they still haven't yeah. found them. So what are people supposed to do? So these individuals' lives are absolutely in danger and is getting more and more precarious by the minute. And it's a matter of time, I fear, that before they are found by the Taliban. All right. Thank you so much, Jenny Kwan, NDP crit immigration critic, talking about the potential lost applications for refugees. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, are you still debating your summer plans? Well, next up, our new weekly segment where we take you across Canada road trip. I'll be talking to someone new. That's next on Free For All Friday. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, which is an extra hour every week for the entire summer. Uh, and we are here for our my favorite segment of the show, frankly. I love the debate from one to two, but we are doing a cross-Canada road trip. So every week we are going to visit a capital of a province of Canada and talk to the mayor of that province, or that city, I should say, rather, not mayors of provinces, although maybe they're mayors of provinces, um, about what makes that city great and why you should go visit it. I know we're all itching to leave the country, but there are amazing places here in Canada that we want to talk about. And I am so, I'm genuinely so excited to talk to this guest. This is a place I've not been in the country. I've always wanted to go. It's on my bucket list. We have Danny Breen, who's the mayor of St. John's in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, mayor Breen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Amanda. Um. So New, like St. John's has existed on maps as early as, as 19 or fifteen nineteen that I can find. So, you know, there's lots of places that are old in Canada, but I think, you know, given explorers and all that kind of stuff, um, St. John's is one of the earliest. So what's it like living in a city with that kind of rich history in that part of our country? Oh, we're, we're rich in heritage and culture and the arts. We have a tremendous uh, music uh, scene here, a tremendous number of artists. 
Uh, we have uh, unique aspects to our to our uh, city, and uh, again, we're right on we're right on the coast and uh, out in the North Atlantic as an island, and it's just a very special place to live and a beautiful place to visit. And you, Newfoundlanders are sort of famous for being, um, you know, even before Come From Away the Musical, you're famous for being welcoming, uh, famous for a joie de vivre and, you know, the music, as you mentioned. Um, but if, if you were trying to convince somebody to come to, to St. John's, to come to Newfoundland and Labrador, um, what, would you, what would you say to them? What's great about your setting? Well, what's great is the experience that you'll have here. We're, uh, we have some, uh, some big city things, but we're a small, small city, very personal city. We have a, a great downtown. Uh, we have a fishing village called uh, Kitty Vitty Village, which is uh, about 10 minutes from our downtown. Uh, there's fishing uh, happening there now. We also have some artisan studios where people uh, display their current uh, crafts. We have uh, uh, the Kitty Vitty Brewing Company. There's a brewery on site, as well as Mallard Cottage. And... Uh, uh, restaurants and in the summer uh, we downtown on Water Street we close down part of our main street along with the famous George Street and have a pedestrian mall and we do the same in Kitty Vitty Village uh, for uh, on weekends during the summer so it's a great place to uh, to enjoy uh, you can uh, find a lot of great uh, outdoors here we have the East Coast Trail we have the trails throughout the the city system and uh, just uh, just a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of uh, friendliness and uh, and a great place to visit. And uh, Mary mentioned um, the famous George Street. So for for folks who don't haven't heard of it, what what's so famous about that street? Well, it's a collection of bars uh, and uh, restaurants that run uh, just off the main main street, Water Street downtown. And there's a number of other bars and restaurants on both Duckworth Street and uh, and, and Water Street around us. Uh, but it's a very vibrant area. We have a George Street Festival happens there in July as one of our festivals, and it's uh, a week of outdoor uh, concerts and uh, and and different types of entertainment. And when when you're here, you can find somebody uh, playing music or and singing uh, just about. Uh, every evening, every uh, afternoon on the weekends on, uh, uh, in the downtown. So it just has a real good vibe to it, and, uh, and uh, people have a whole lot of fun and enjoy coming to, uh, to experience it. Um, I've got friends actually who are vacationing uh, in in Newfoundland as we speak, and they've been to, they've been to St. John's, and it looks it looks like a blast, but it doesn't look warm. Um, they're in like they're in vests and jeans and, and boots and all that kind of stuff. So is there is there a better time to come out to St. John's uh, of the year? Would you recommend a certain window, or you know, should brave Canadians go at any time? Well, I think one thing you do uh, anywhere is you, you adjust to the weather. So it's a bit cool here now, and it will be uh, for another another couple of weeks. But then it'll warm up, and we usually have a a, a very nice September and uh, and into October as well. But it's the events that are happening, uh, and that all kicks off next week. We have our Riceberg Alley performance tent uh, that'll uh, feature ten days, I believe it is, of uh, musical entertainment in the evening, and uh, a number of different headliner acts like uh, Burton Cummings and. Uh, and and, and other national lacks. And then we have the George Street Festival. We also have the Newfoundland Labrador Folk Festival, an outdoor concert that happens here in July as well. And we also have the longest-running uh, annual sporting event in North America, the, uh, the 203rd running, I believe it is, of the Royal St. John's Regatta which happens on the first Wednesday of August. So uh, the weather can be a bit tricky at times, but uh, <laughs> when there's a beautiful day in St. John's, there's no more beautiful place in the world. <laughs> um, 
I think a lot of our listeners are just texting and talking about screeching in. Um, for folks who don't know what that is, um, can you explain what screeching in means? And, and is it is it overhyped or is it like a real tradition uh, yeah, in St. John's? Yeah, it's a tradition for people that visit here. They uh, usually uh, it's very popular with conventions and uh, and large gatherings. So people will go to uh, a person who's uh, who who can screech them in, and they go through a, um, a different series of rituals to make them an honorary Newfoundlander. And people have a lot of fun with it. There's usually a good bit of entertainment around it and a lot of laughter. So I don't want to give all the way away all the secrets of it, but uh, people that do it enjoy it, and uh, it it adds to your to your claim of being an honorary Newfoundlander. But just, I know you don't want to add to, I know you want to give all the secrets of the screeching in process, but there is, there is booze involved and there is a fish involved is my understanding, correct? There's a kissing of a fish at some point in this process? Absolutely. absolutely. And, and is the fish alive or is the fish deceased? Uh, no, the fish is not alive, no. <laughs> Hey, I'm just just checking for when I go there if I need to put like extra lip gloss on or <laughs> No, we uh the fish is not alive. <laughs> um thank you very much for that that edifying information. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> and can I ask there's you guys call um you know the come from way there's the the musical, but it's actually a term used for kind of people that are not from from Newfoundland or not from St. John's. Um, so how long are you considered to come from away before you're a native Newfoundlander? Or you have to be like third generation or are you sort of able to get in there once you're screeched? Like what's the difference? Well, I, I think a come from away is anybody who's who's not uh, native to, uh, to to Newfoundland. When you get screeched in, you get that honorary status. But uh, we, uh, we, we treat people from uh, outside uh, Newfoundland and Labrador uh, extremely well, so most people like the come from away uh, tag because uh, you uh, you you get then to get the extra extra hospitality of uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians uh, welcoming you to the province. Well, that would be pretty amazing because your hospitality is already uh, renowned across the country. So, um, before we we've got about a minute left, I would just love to hear from you. Um, actually, about thirty seconds left, I should say. Sorry. Um, are there any hidden gems? Anything people haven't thought of that we should know about? Uh, I mean, if you go out on the East Coast Trail, it's a trail that uh, that winds along the uh, uh, the cliffs of uh, of the of of Newfoundland, and it's just the if you like hiking, it's a it's a must visit. Uh, we have an elaborate trail system in the city that goes through uh, throughout the city, and that too is very special. Signal Hill um, is uh, and Cabot Tower are two of the uh, are two great places here in the city. Cape Spear, just outside. St. John's, most easterly point in uh, in North America. Uh, there's just so much to see here, and uh, uh, you know, when people come here, they're really uh, uh, they're they're really taken up with the fact that of the restaurants and the and the culture and the One. endless entertainment. It's just fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mayor Breen. That's Mayor Breen of St. John's. Uh, coming up next, it's Free for All Friday, the ranch where we talk about the biggest issues of the week. Uh, we'll be right back after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to Free for All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Friday again. If you've been with me for the last hour, you know that Free For All Friday is now an extra 
two hours this whole summer. And if you're just joining us, you're in the best part of the show. I love the first half, but I've got to say, um, I love debating the biggest news of the week with smart people. And the two folks I have on my panel today are some of my favorites that come on the show. So actually, literally, we were talking yesterday with Sam, the pr- our producer, and when she told me um, who we had on in the panel this week, I was like, woohoo! Uh, we are joined by Tom Mulcair, CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader and call Doc Stutter, co-host of One Dish, One Mike, Saturdays from 10 to noon in Niagara, London, and Windsor. Tom and Carl, welcome back. I'm so excited to be with you this Friday to talk about all this stuff. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Tom. Hi, Carl. Well, you're both so you're both so smart and just thoughtful, and I really love the de- the depth of the debate. So those are there's some shows where I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have to work a little harder, and some shows where I'm like, oh, this will be a good this will be a good Friday, and this is this is that one. Um, so I want to dive right in. Uh, the controversial Saudi-backed LIV or Live or whatever we're calling it um, golf series kicked off yesterday. Um, and if, I'm sure you probably heard of it now because I don't even love golf at all. I don't watch it. And yet I have been immersed in this story because I think it's fascinating. Um, it's the challenger to the PGA that has been scooping up players. Um, and, of course, the PGA announced as this, as this uh, new series kicked off that they're suspending 17 members who are competing in LIV this weekend. Um, as mentioned, I don't really follow golf. My partner, Mark, does and loves it, so it's on at our house. Um, but I will say the soap opera-level drama of this, um, I think, has, has gone well beyond the normal golf world. Um, not to mention just, I think, the fascinating way they're rolling out this new tournament. There's no major network. They're streaming it only. Um, the players will tee off simultaneously and play in teams. Uh, so there's a whole approach to me that's interesting from a disruption perspective. But then there's this bigger question of sports washing. Uh, which we want to talk about today. So Declan Hill is an investigative journalist specializing in organized crime and international sports, and he joined the Evan Solomon Show this week to talk about that. That's where you set up this patina of international glamorous sports events. They've moved into boxing in a major, major way. As you and most of our listeners know, much of the heavyweight title championships are now fought in Riyadh. Uh, the UFC MMA guys have done the similar things with Dubai, which is similar human rights challenged regime there. So he was also specifically looking at the uh, LIV golf series and, and said this tactic is being used by the Saudi government um, to improve their tarnished reputation. It's really difficult yep. to overstate the problems. I mean, in March, the Saudis um, executed 80 people, beheaded them. Some of them were what we would describe as civil rights activists, you know, people that were blogging things that their regime didn't like. So he also mentioned that, and I agree, that this is an existential threat to the PGA Tour. Because the amount of money they're throwing at these golfers is so large that any opinions, virtue, whatever is being thrown out the window by many of these guys and just saying, here, we're, t- we're taking the multi-million dollar payout. Now, here's my quick take before I throw it open here. One, I think golf is ripe for disruption. I think the sport is stayed and, you know, some people love it, but it's not attracting new viewers, and I think there's a risk there. Um, I also, my understanding, at least from the research, is they're not that great at rewarding players, like the, unlike the NBA, who recognizes their players are stars and I think compensates them accordingly. I also think sports washing, as we're calling it, although this is a new term that I learned this week, um, takes place in almost every single sport. So we should object. If you want to object to this tournament, which is fair, are we objecting to the Olympics in Beijing, where the Uyghur genocide continues? Uh, what about the fact that F1, which I love very much, plays in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, which are, you know, you know Qatar, for example, 6,500 6, migrant workers have died since the World Cup was awarded there, largely as part of construction. 
So all to say, if we're going to get up in arms about golf, we need to get up in arms about sports. Um, and you first, Tom, do you take issue with this tournament or is sports washing just part of the game? No, I find it really offensive that so many top-level players of golf who were in you know, the pro tour that existed up until now have simply decided that there's more money to be made here and they're not asking themselves any questions. Because it's a big difference between an individual going into this type of game and countries saying, okay, we've got no choice. We're going to China, but we're going to peel back on any diplomatic representation. We're not going to honor the Chinese government because we know, for example, what's happening with the Uyghurs. And you've referenced the two other big cases. You've talked about, of course, the upcoming World Cup of soccer, but there's also any number of countries, as you say, and like really sketchy uh, <laughs> with regard to the human rights records that are hosting big international events like the Grand Prix. I mean, this is a major thing. This is your chamber of commerce. This is putting your best foot forward, putting yourself in the best possible light internationally. So when people are watching a Grand Prix on a Sunday afternoon and saying, oh, this is really nice. Look at the beautiful scenes there. I didn't know they have big cities like that. That's amazing. This is good advertising for them, but you're not supposed to look behind the screen. You're not supposed to be saying, but what else is going on there? And you just gave a couple of examples. So I, shame on those golfers uh, for, for selling out like this and, and for going in and you know, allowing countries like Saudi Arabia to have a better reputation than they deserve because, of course, they have an absolutely horrid human rights record. Carl, I heard you kind of pop in there at one point. Do you agree um, with Tom, like shame on those golfers, that this is uh, we should hold them accountable? I mean, yeah, for sure. I agree with Tom that, that this is reprehensible, but this has also been going on for, for a long time. We saw a major disconnect between the way that NBA players were able to speak out when we were all as a collective mourning the unnecessary killing of black people by police in the United States of America. Like there was such a stark contrast between the way the NBA handled it and the way that frankly, the NFL dropped mm -hmm. the ball. They fumbled for lack of a better term. But we also went through this where, where Canada tepidly said, well, well, we'll do a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics in China, but we're still going to send our athletes. We're still going to market it heavily. We're still going to get actively involved. So it's not it's not like this is a new conversation, but I do think that Saudi Arabia like this. This is a whole new level now of politics and human rights abuses that are that are splashing together. And unfortunately, yeah, we, we get to see this play out in, in professional golf. Now, we, you know, we've talked about maybe this is a whole new level. It certainly is, is, you know, it's probably the most aggressive, overt, I think, example of this that we've seen, in, in, at least to my mind, in, in a while. But, you know, pulling it back a bit, and, and Tom, you talked about this a little bit, in that for the Olympics, for example, Canada didn't send diplomatic representation, right, to sort of it's right. to embarrass was... the Chinese. So we, the Olympics, for example, are famously corrupt, <laughs> like famously corrupt. So how do we... Historically, you're right. So how do we hold sports accountable when money is king when 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 saudi you know when they can just decide to throw like tens of millions of dollars of things hundred million dollars and just like and create this like how, how do we hold people accountable as as the fans as the public what what is it our job to do here inform the fans what they'll be doing if they watch something from this new sports event around golf that's being subsidized and put together by saudi arabia telling people what's involved, what, what Saudi Arabia is, what its record is. And, you know, we've got to tread carefully around this because in London, Ontario, you know, we're probably still building because it was a very large order. Uh, maybe it's been delivered by now, but we, for, for years and years, we've been building arm, armored personnel carriers that we're delivering to the Saudi Arabian, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And there's lots of information available. You can see films of where they were using very similar equipment against civilians. 
and yet Canada, because it was a multi, multi-billion dollar order, and you know the unions involved were pushing back heavily, saying, "Hey, these are good jobs," which they of course are. So it's not just you know millionaire sports figures who can sell out because they want to get even more millions of dollars, but countries like Canada really have to ask themselves some tough questions. Mr. Trudeau talked a good line with regard to Saudi Arabia. And then he was put in his place because uh, the Saudis barked back and said, okay, this is what you have going in Canada. This is the number of students that we're subsidizing. This is what we're doing in your universities. Back off. And guess what? Trudeau backed off. Um, I got about 30 seconds to you, Carl. What do you think we need as fans, we need to be doing to kind of send a message, if anything? I, I don't think it's going to work. I, I think that we should try to send a message. I think that we should be on the moral high ground on this, but we've already seen with other sports, like, like frankly, NFL owners, they're, they're not a very classy or nice group of people. Yeah. We line up every single Sunday to watch every single game. So the ship is sailed. Yeah. Well, it's like funny because I'm uh, like, I love F1. Like I'm, I love, I watch it every single Sunday and MBS yeah. is the, is the elected president of the FIA, like the organ, like governing body, like, and he's the, you know, president of Saudi Arabia. So, like, it's it's, and I don't know. Like, I'm sorry, I I'm gonna watch F1, but I need to be aware and educated about this stuff. So, uh, who's your, what's your favorite team, Tom? Before I go on F1, the Montreal Alouettes. If we're talking Canadian football, what sport? I mean, oh, I was talking F like uh like like race cars, like the uh the F1 turn, which is actually coming to Montreal, I think, uh next week. Oh, we, we're come coming Montreal on the on the 19th. Yeah, there we um, go. I would. All right. Well, we'll get that from Tom after the break. The disaster at Canadian airports has reached a new peak. Find out who's to blame next on Free For All Friday. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Friday to you. Welcome back to Free For All Friday, where we talk about some of the biggest stories of the week with some incredibly smart people in this country. And today we have Tom Mulcair, CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader, and Carl Dockstetter, co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs from Saturdays from 10 to noon in Niagara, London, and Windsor, Ontario. This story made huge news this week. Huge news this week. Um, When a former hockey player... And Barstool Sports podcaster Ryan Whitney, who is famous for inventing the drink Pink Whitney, which, by the way, is not worth it, and don't do it, uh, went viral for being trapped at Pearson Airport for over 12 hours when he was trying to fly from Edmonton to Boston. And also, for the record, that's what you get for going to Edmonton. But seriously, uh, the fiasco at Pearson and Canadian airports has reached epic proportions. Uh, and I think it's something that has it's been making news all week in Ottawa. Um, it's been making huge news here in Toronto. And there's good reasons for that. One, Pearson is the second largest employment zone in Ontario. It's Canada's largest airport. It is, um, as the CEO calls it, sort of the, the front door of this country, right? It's how we welcome many people. Um, and it's gotten to the point now where these delays which have a variety of factors, um, are causing your Canada to cancel 10% of their flights this last week. Federal government says they're moving as quickly as possible to, to find solutions, but, you know, no firm, firm timeline on that. Now, what are the problems? Well, Duncan D., a former Air Canada executive, says it will only get worse and predicts delays will remain well past Labor Day. He said COVID protocols like the Arrive Can app are making customs agents take four times, so that four times as much time to process passengers. Before the pandemic, it was somewhere around 30 to 60 seconds, and now it's taken upwards of four to five minutes, and you multiply that by the number of travelers and the number of flights, 
and it becomes a complete mess. Former Conservative Party of Canada Transportation Minister Lisa Raitt says Pearson becoming a super hub is, quote, a hangover from the government's pandemic policy restricting international flights. There was a policy decision made by this government to prevent direct flights internationally from certain airports in this country. And this is a hangover of it because the airlines have rerouted and they are figuring out different ways in order to reach their international clients. Yeah. And it's easier to do hubbing than it is to go direct. So this is a hangover from an old policy of the government. So the government has said they've added another big issue is shortage, obviously shortage of screeners. We've heard that it's not unique to um, to airports, but it's acutely felt there. So the government said they've added 865 new security screeners to address a worker shortage. But new screeners aren't going to fix the fact that rather than take 30 to 60 seconds, it takes four to five minutes now to get through. Um, and that includes um, mandatory random testing. So what's happening now from international travel in particular is you arrive and even if they only test, let's say, like 2,000 people coming through, they have to assess every single person. And from international arrivals, we're looking at 45,000 um, folks coming in a day, right? So it's 45,000 people you're screening, even if they're not all being tested. Uh, so this is a huge issue. Um, it's it's remarkable to me it's still happening. Um, Tom, you know, you're a, you're a seasoned political watcher. Um, you know, the government certainly is is – I've never seen them. They're communicating daily about this now, the feds, because it certainly landed on their doorstep. But what do you think needs to be done to solve this? Well, before being a politician, I was a senior bureaucrat. And I can tell you, I have never seen a government as gummed up in all of its works as the current liberal government in Ottawa. There are two million cases in the backlog at Immigration Canada. You can't get a passport. And as you just so correctly described, you can't get through Canada's busiest airport. And we found out, because it came out during the beginning of the Russia Russian war against Ukraine, that we have nothing near what we've promised to do with NATO. Well, we always show up in meetings and smile, but we don't actually do anything because we don't have any equipment to do anything. So this is the Canada that we're looking at today. We talk about things like climate change, then Mr. Trudeau goes ahead and approves the largest offshore oil project that we've ever seen. And he's nowhere near, and he never will. We've got the worst record in the G7 for greenhouse gas reductions since the signing of the Paris Accord. And I was with Trudeau in the room in Paris when he held out his arms and said, Canada is back. And we were back with the worst record. So this is what we're looking at, Amanda. Forget about just looking at transport, although when Minister Omar Al-Gabra decided that it was traveler's fault yeah. i think he should have he should have been sacked on the spot he should have been told to go clean up his cv whatever's on it because there's certainly nothing to do with administering a ministry as complicated as the transport department of canada um well well tom and that i didn't even talk about that there's so much on this issue i'd even talk about the fact that yes at one point the minister blamed passengers who just quote unquote weren't used to traveling as opposed to all of the new restrictions and rules and regs and lacks of staff, which they knew, by the way, as well. They knew that 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 travel was going to peak once the pandemic seized. They knew they needed to hire people back. And yet, like nothing, like very little seems to have been done to fix this. And now they're trying to fix it afterwards, right? Put the toothpaste back in the tube. Carl, um, do you think, like, I think Tom makes a really interesting point, which is this may be bigger than just this issue. It may be an issue with the government itself. Like this is, you know, the city of Toronto, for example, it, it picks up your garbage, right? Every day, if the city doesn't pick up your garbage properly, they get in big trouble. Um, the federal you government does very, yeah. very little. Yeah, you know about it, right? They do very little day to day things that impact you. Passports are one of them. Um, airports are another. And they're both messes. So do we think 
Carl, that this is a bigger issue with this government or is it actually just unique to airports and passports and we should calm down? No, no. I mean, I, I think it's laughable the way that this has been handled. I think that this could have been handled way better. But I have to qualify that and say that I live in Niagara Falls, one crooked football throw away from an international border. And <laughs> nobody nobody has ever figured out in, in my 40 plus years on this earth how to make crossing that border smooth. Like this isn't something that's, that's specific to this liberal government, which is not doing a great job handling post-COVID. And why do we still have an ArriveCan app? That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. There's no way to vet if those results are actually accurate. It's not aligned with any kind of an international passport system. But this is just compounded by, I think, a generation of inefficiency when it comes to international travel, to air travel, and, and no offense to any bureaucrats or former bureaucrats that may be in the room, but this has been gummed up by bureaucracy for a while. Yeah, but, Quebec, but right, right now in Ottawa, we're living something I've never seen in my lifetime, and I have been at this for a whole long time. I've never seen a government that simply couldn't do the basic things of government. I love Amanda's example of picking up the garbage or cleaning the streets, getting, the, getting it done. But what's happening now in Ottawa is we get the same breathless take from Prime Minister Trudeau every time. Oh, well, we're working as hard as we possibly can. And we're working so hard on passports and on Pearson <laughs> and on the backlog in immigration. But actually, they're not. And we learned, for example, just how backward we were with regard to procurement. This is a government that can't buy a box of paper clips, much less a fighter jet that we've been talking about for 30 years, because we spent the previous 30 years trying to replace helicopters. We bought 24 of those, and 23 of them have cracks in the fuselage. That's the way the Canadian government is being run right now. It was once, once one of the better and more efficient governments in the G7. We're now a laughing stock. There's basic things that are, are done in the public interest by governments. And because we get stuck on so much other stuff, like debates about the country and whether who can fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, and just all sorts of nonsense, the basic stuff of government, getting services to the public, protecting the public, looking after the public interest, that's lost. And it's not the public's fault that, that, that Pearson Airport, the busiest in Canada, is a complete mess. It's the government's fault, period. And, you know, well put, Tom. And, and Carl, I got about a minute left, but I want to ask you this. You're a, you just mentioned you, you're close to a border town, right? I grew up in a border town as well. I grew up in Windsor area. Um, how, you know, not being able to cross the border is a, a huge deal for us. It's a big part of our identity. Do you think there's political, there's going to be political ramifications for, for the liberals, the federal liberals about this, um, if they don't fix this soon? Oh, I, I definitely think they're running out of time to, to fix it. And I, I have to concede Tom's points just because of that amazing impression of the prime minister that he, that he snuck into his point there. So it was great. You, you got this, Tom. <laughs> it's that, it's that, that dull, dulcet tone inflection that he, that he gets to when he's trying to get out of something. I can't deal with it. it. I literally, I cannot. I'm writing that down. I'm actually going to write that down. Dulcet no, inflection. It's and I used, you know, the the late great Christy Blatchford used to talk about it too. And I, it's like I, it's something I just I viscerally react to it. Oh, <laughs> it's not, oh, same so. as me. I just because because you know it's just a way of getting out of it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. All right. Well, I think that story uh, certainly uh, is nowhere near solved. Um, we are going to continue to watch it closely on the show, um, revisit it, and hopefully um, my flight, which takes off Saturday night, will not be um, victim as the same as the others. Uh, anyway, the Conservative Party of Canada confirmed this week they've sold 600,000 memberships. 
a record for any political party in Canadian history. Is this a good thing? And what does it mean for the race? That's next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we unpack some of the biggest stories of the week. And if you're just joining us for the second hour, all summer long, you get an extra hour of Free For All Friday. So from noon to two, um, tune in to get uh, big news off the top. And of course, the debate from one to two o'clock. And by the way, our debate is scoring points, uh, Tom. I've got a text in here that says, Tom, you're the man. Love you, Todd from Ottawa. So there you go. Your, uh, your impressions and commentary in the last segment. Uh, we're a hit with the text right board. Stop doing that. <laughs> For sure. And that, of course, is Tom Mulcahy, CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader, and Carl Docksetter, who's the co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which is gone from Saturdays from 10 to noon in Niagara, London, and Windsor. Now, the Conservative Party of Canada has been in this hotly contested leadership race. Uh, in the lead-up, basically, they've been selling memberships, right? They have to sell the memberships, the memberships cut off, and then they work in converting those memberships to people who will vote for them. They announced this week that 600,000 people have signed up to be members of the party. Um, it's a record that for any political party in Canada for paid memberships. Uh, this figure includes, I should say, old memberships as well as new ones sold by the various candidates. Now, this is the part where it gets kind of funny, where all of the candidates come out and basically claim, I have sold 80 bajillion memberships, and they all add up to like a number twice as much as what's out there in public. So the Pierre Polyev campaign, and let's not say some of these might not be true, have announced that they have, they have, they have sold 300,000 memberships, which is insane, insane. Um, and for comparison, for example, the last time, the 2020 election, what crowned Aaron O'Toole, 269,000 memberships were eligible. So in totality of all the candidates, they sold less memberships than what Pierre Polyev is claiming that he did in the first ballot. So if he gets it, he'd have that on first ballot, in my take. Um, on the Evan Solomon, the Evan, uh, Patrick Brown, who's another candidate, came on the Evan Solomon show this week. And I was asked about his campaign and announced record sales for himself as well. We've surpassed the 150,000 figure. We're very excited about that uh, milestone. Um, the previous records we saw in party leaderships were more in the range of, of being in excess of 40,000. Now, Patrick Brand also called Pierre Polyev's number a quote-unquote inflated, to be kind. Uh, not so fast, said the Polyev campaign spokesperson Jenny Byrne. Here she is weighing in on that. No, that's well, it's a complete lie. That's obviously another lie by Patrick Brown and his advisors because, Evan, what they do is, is what they do best is, is lie. There is in no way the uh, PolyF campaign is against uh, giving out a full list of, uh, of memberships. But what the other campaigns are asking for is a partial list, which is, again, besides the point, it's completely against the rules. So that's some debating about whether or not to release lists, which is a little more into the weeds on this. But she also said that Patrick Brown is lying about selling 150,000 memberships. Like he lies about membership, he lies about this stuff in the past. And if he actually did sell 150,000 memberships, release the exact number. I just gave you exact numbers of what we sold, uh, of what we sold nationally as well as in the ridings. We have this. The party provided this to all campaigns. So. Uh, now, the other candidate, Sheree, has not released a number beyond saying tens of thousands, but says this number, quote, gives him the edge to win, and the other candidates have not weighed into this whole pitter-patter back and forth. For extra context, by the way, the Liberals, when they crowned uh, Prime Minister Trudeau in 2013, 127,000 members were eligible to vote. So right now we have 600,000 people in Canada 
um, which is a, a kind of an insane engagement to me with the with the political leadership process. Um, uh, Tom, you've been part of leadership campaigns. Is this is this yep. number good for democracy? You're like, have I ever? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an incredible number, as you correctly say. I've, I always thought since the beginning that Poitiers might have a real shot at taking it on the first ballot. And then he decided to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada in the middle of a debate. And a lot of people went, what? What did you just say? And so the, his number softened quite a bit, but it looks like the 300,000 number could, could quite plausibly be real. And if that's the case, I think this thing's over. Because Charest not even putting up the beginning of an attempt to explain his number, the, the closest we got is he said, we've outperformed expectations in Calgary. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm suspecting that that probably Podiev has 30,000 people in the Calgary area who have taken out cards to vote for him. And Charest, maybe his expectation was 200 and he got 300. So the whole deal has always been, there are 338 ridings, 100 points per riding. So if you're in Manicouagan riding in the lower North Shore of Quebec and there are exactly 120 conservative members in Chavez sold them all, he gets 100 points. And if Poiliev in a Calgary riding has sold 30,000, uh, it's still only 100 points. So there is that bizarre math that almost gave the poor conservatives Maxime Bernier as a leader a couple of times ago. So that's the hope that springs eternal for Charest and Patrick Brown and I would dare say Leslie Lewis, because they have been selling memberships. But I don't think that they're going to be anywhere near Poitiev if these numbers hold. I think that the only time that Poitiev was maybe telling a bit of a nose stretcher uh, a la Pinocchio was when he said that he, he put up a rather large number for Quebec. I haven't seen anything resembling that here in my home province. Yeah, my gut is the 300K is a real figure um i don't think they'd be yeah, that bullish yeah. in the public about it I, I think they would have to kind of be bullish but like their first ballot strategy makes sense to me but it like it doesn't kick that that they'd be faking and it. it doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all no and um, we're going to see in his behavior does he accept debates or does he take a pure front runner strategy from now on the other candidates all want more debates no kidding they, they want another <laughs> ticket to Poiliev. but Poiliev, if he and his team and jenny Byrne, you can just hear how redoubtable she is in that interview if they're saying no more debates it's because they know they've got this yeah um Carl, you know, I would I, I would say, like, regardless of whether or not you support the Conservative Party, um, 600,000 people signing up to be members of a political party um, is historic. I think it's good for democracy. But there are some folks that are saying if, in fact, it's the 300,000 people that Pierre has signed up, um, you know, some there's some criticism of who he's signing up. Right. Some of those elements of that party, the truckers, you know, um, their ties are you concerned there's a takeover happening of the CPC, or do you think this is just good for democracy? We should be happy that people are engaged. I mean, when you look at what just happened in Ontario, I think there are a lot of political science lessons to be learned about engaging yeah. people, yeah. getting people excited about causes. And so, yeah, I mean, this is a good exercise in civics, regardless of how you feel about Pierre Polyev. But this is also another sign. that It just looks like Pierre Polyev has been a step ahead of, of everybody else. Sheree was supposed yeah. to really be the dominant force for that 23% of the overall votes that will be decided by, by Quebec uh, conservative supporters. And it looks, it actually looks like Patrick Brown performed very strong in Quebec. Uh, or, sorry, uh, Pierre Polyev performed very strong in, in Quebec with Brown in second place and Charest in, in third. The math that, that I think we had going into this coming into 2022 has been blown up. And it, it looks like Pierre Polyev is, is the clear front runner. And, and that starts with getting people fired up by playing outside of the conventional political playbook. Yeah, we, we saw that south of the border. People who want change want real change. 
and Chavet came in. I, I was in his cabinet, full disclosure, and we had a major dust up. I, I left his cabinet um, on an issue of not not wanting to transfer land in a provincial park to developers to build condos. Who knew? Uh, but that was <laughs> the type of government Chavet had. But he, he is, a, he is an, a very capable and experienced politician, but he came at this in the strangest way. He came at it as an armchair quarterback from Montreal saying, you guys have got it all wrong. What you need is a 1980s conservative like me. And the reaction from the party was, stop lecturing us on who we are and how wrong we are. If you want to be a leader of the party, show your stuff. And he had no stuff to show. He is that person who was on the, you know, the Brian Mulroney bandwagon back in the day. They can put as brave a face as they want on this thing. But the very fact that they're pleading for that debate, again, for me, it just shows that they know that Poitiers got this. Yeah. And, and to be like, to be candid, I haven't kind of decided where I'm going to, I am a member of the Conservative Party. Um, and I was before, member before this membership bonanza that has happened. But uh, I know from talking to, to friends of mine, because I worked in the Harper government, that the the sort of I've arrived to tell you how to do this properly, and I have a lot of respect for Shreya as a politician in Canada. Yeah. Um, but the criticism of Harper and the and the criticism of Harper and the sort of you know I'm here to save you from yourselves sort of uh, it felt flat. exactly exactly. Like, yeah. I'm like thank you for not having participated in our party for 13 years. We appreciate the lecture. You can go see yourself yes. out. <laughs> yeah, just so that everybody knows, I was in his cabinet because he was a liberal premier of Quebec. Okay, <laughs> just, just just to get that straight. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's wild. But I, you know, when I heard this 300,000 number rumored before they announced it publicly, I thought that is insane. It's crazy. Um, I think it's encouraging to see people engaged uh, in a political party, um, and especially given the results we had in Ontario here with the vote. So we will watch this. Um, we will see hey, the Amanda, total. Think about it for one second. That's nine nine million bucks for the Conservative Party at 15 bucks a pop. Just that. There we go. They're making money as well. Um, Next up on the panel, do you post photos of your kids on social media? Learn why experts are saying you should think twice. That's next on Free For All Friday. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. That's a musical deep cut right there. We're listening to on Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith, as mentioned, host of Free For All Friday. We're in the last bit of the show where we like to have a little bit of fun to take you into your Friday. And we're debating, of course, some of the biggest stories of the week. And these are some of the quirkier ones, for sure. Uh, today on the panel, we have Thomas Mulcair, CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader, and Carl Dockstetter, co-host of One Dish, One Mike, Saturdays from 10 to noon in Niagara, London, and Windsor. So as I mentioned before the break... Do you post pictures of your kids on social media? Is that a thing that you do? I've got friends, some of whom you would have no idea they have children. They don't post at all. Some of whom all their entire accounts are just their kids. So Karen Irwin works as a parenting coach in Toronto and has three children her show, herself. She's taught with something called sharenting, or where parents overshare images of their children, which can have unintended consequences when they grow up, especially in their early teen and tween years. Here she is starting to you know figure out who they are in this world and i do know that image and social media and what they might see or what's portrayed of them might impact sort of their thoughts and and ideas and feelings around who they are and their identity and might not appreciate that so she recommends instead of posting um that if the child is old enough to understand offer consent your best bet is to frankly, ask them first and that then they can say it's a model of consent in social media stuff. Now, 
that sounds very nice. But at the end of the day, if you're a parent, you're proud of your kid. Um, you know, it's a baby. The baby can't consent. Like, I, I don't know where you land here. I'm not, I don't have kids yet, so I haven't quite decided, but I love getting updates about my nieces. I love getting updates about my friend's kids. Um, Tom, do you think people are oversharing photos of their kids? Um, should they, yep. should they stop this or are we kind of overplaying this a little bit? Of course I had my kids who are both in their forties, uh, long before social media, but they've got kids. We had Catherine and I have four grandchildren now. And I've watched our own, our sons go through a cycle where at the beginning, when these things were just starting up like 15 years ago-ish, you know, with regard to Facebook, maybe 20 for some of them now, but people were really getting into it. They were at it like many other people putting up photos and stuff. And now, now, especially when they started having their kids, they said, no, this is, this makes us uncomfortable. We'll share them with the family. So you were talking about a niece and everything like that. We do exactly that with my brothers and sisters and other family members. We send stuff around amongst ourselves. But we don't post them, uh, for example, to Facebook. Uh, otherwise, it's it was there. They were uncomfortable with it. And a lot of it had to do with the safety of their kids. But I was listening to the clip. And I guess that it would include the psychological safety of the kids, too. Uh, Carl, I know you have you kids as well. What's your I mean, you don't have to say your personal take on this, but or sorry, personal approach to it. But what's your what's your take on sharing and, and sort of where to draw the line? No, no, I think, I think it's gone overboard and I don't mind sharing my own perspective. Um, actually, uh, a friend of mine, local regional counselor, Lori, yep, call, refers to her children as her spawn. So there's no like personally identifying <laughs> information of them. But I've, I've got a 14, almost 15 year old and I posted plenty of pictures of her. And if I mess with her, like, Insta I don't even know, is it Instagram, Snapchat? I don't even know. But if I mess with her online brand now, I'll, I'll have heck to pay. So I'm not even going to foray <laughs> over into that. So uh, Catherine, I'm sorry I've ever posted anything of you online. I will go and scrub it all right now. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, it is. See, that's well, another it's, whole, that's another different angle, yeah. Yeah, no, totally, right? Like my friend's got, um, she's, she's a tween, she's 12, but yeah, like you try and take photos of her and she basically runs and, and hides. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a funny line to go. I don't know what I would do about it. It would be hard not to share, but I think um at the end of the day like at tom to your point we have a family group chat and we sort of share funny videos and yeah. that kind of stuff and yeah, it's, we do uh, that. Yeah, it's it's exactly. it's good enough so there's there's a good there's a good balance to say but to to those of you who do share photos of your kids you're not being shamed at all we understand you're no, just no. really proud <laughs> um but maybe think twice about it especially when they do get to be 14 because like although i thank the lord every day that there was no social media when i was growing up slash in university because <laughs> there'd be all kinds of things <laughs> on the internet that well, that's nobody... another that's another thing altogether what you have to live with if you decide to go into politics for example boy there's stuff that goes all the way back to university that came popped up in the middle of the ontario campaign and uh, it can cause havoc for the the political parties there we go but for the grace of god go we all um this last one i wanted to put exactly. to the <laughs> put to the panel uh as a bit of a, a bit of a fun debate here so we want to talk about world records so a french man who's I can't imagine his head is not full of headaches shattered a world record for the most bungee jumps in 24 hours so the previous record was 430 I don't know and this, he did 765 jumps in 24 hours Francois-Marie Dibon um, talked about how he did this I went on the website to see a bungee jump spot uh, something that was just uh, out of my reach, had been out of my reach my whole life, but I decided to give it a try. So I went there, I did two, and then I start thinking that I could do that all day. So I just decided to put that statement to the test. 
So there you go. So he did that. So it got me thinking, and what could what what world record could I break if I could do it? So I love Kraft Dinner with like a passion that other than ketchup, which is why I love ketchup. So there is, I know, this is like, you're so white. I am so white and I love Kraft Dinner and I'm like, I'm with an Italian man and he's horrified by it. Um, but there's a world record where you can eat, the fastest time to eat a box of Kraft Dinner is 30.5 seconds. And I think I could beat that. So that is my statement about my world record aspirations. Uh, Tom, do you have a world record or activity or skill that you think you could you could break or achieve a new height? Maybe talking fast on radio shows when I'm being interviewed by like, people like Amanda Galbraith. <laughs> but I, I, I think that what I want to do is I want to be holding the stopwatch when you set the craft Dinner world record. KD <laughs> world record for Amanda Galbraith. It sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, what about you? Do you have any ambitions? Yeah, you know what? I was looking it up, and there's a bunch of stuff that, that's banned. Like, you can't win the record for blinking the most or not blinking over a period of time. There's no hunger strike record. You can't get your pet all fat and put them on. They, they don't do heaviest pets anymore. There's no speeding on public roads. I feel like that would be a very fun one. Nothing bad could happen if you tried to, if you tried to break that record. Uh, small fruits and vegetable plants. But what I, it's actually World Ice Tea Day, which I'm going to talk about when I host the Tom McConnell show on 610 right after this show. The, the mistake I made, though, is I'm setting the world record for holding my bladder through Free For All Friday for the longest period of time after drinking all of that ice tea. Oh, that's amazing. I did not. Well, thank you for doing double duty, man. That's I know that's a long time. I've done that <laughs> before and it is it is a haul. Um, all right. So I have come out publicly with my craft and her love. I, I see from both both Tom and Carl, you deferred, but I will I will accept that because Tom's support of my KD record and the fact that Carl <laughs> has, been, uh, has been so amazing about doing that. The other one I thought of, by the way, just for fun, is this is probably a bit too personal, but the record for the longest shower is 174 hours, and I love taking baths, <laughs> and I could literally probably spend days in a bathtub. So, so not an image anybody wants, but there you go. There's your Friday. Um, I want to thank so much to Tom and Carl for joining. Uh, it's been a blast as always. Thank you to have you, you on so you guys are great um funny we uh you know we talk about big deep issues we get into funny things about and that's kind of what i want to do for for the fridays for your whole summer is to kind of have a little bit of fun here talk about major issues but also leave you with a smile on your face um i also big thank you out to technical producers nick and our producer sam who comes up with all the ideas and it keeps me on the straight and narrow as mentioned we are on for two hours Two hours all summer long, so tune in from noon to two. The first hour, we're going to be interviewing people, talking to newsmakers all week. And then the second hour, we obviously do the free-for-all Friday debate from one to two. Um, I'm Amanda Galbraith. I'm going to be off for a couple weeks, so you'll be joined by Deb Hutton uh, in the next two weeks. And then we have, of course, the Canada Long Weekend, which will be amazing. So I want to wish you all the best weekend ever. Have a wonderful time, and I will see you back in July. Thanks so much.